Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. In this episode, I'm looking at the reopening of the hospitality sector, which begins on June 2nd when accommodation providers are allowed to reopen their doors. I spoke with Paul Kelly, Chief Executive of Fault Ireland, and Elena Fitzgerald Kane, Sales Director of the family-run Woodlands Hotel and Spa in Adair, and also President of the Irish Hotels Federation. You'll hear Paul Kelly explain Fulcher Ireland's plans to help promote domestic tourism this summer and whether or not the state's draconian mandatory hotel quarantine regime will impact long-term on Ireland's image with overseas tourists. Elena Fitzgerald Kane, meanwhile, will outline the changes and costs involved in getting our hotel ready to reopen to guests next month. And she tells me why the state financial supports available to businesses should remain in place until next March. I should say that this show was recorded just before Fulcher Ireland issued new guidelines on indoor dining. Just in case you're wondering. Here we go. Elena Fitzgerald Kane, you're president of the Irish Hotels uh, Federation and sales director of the Woodlands House Hotel in Adair. And I presume you've been feeding into these uh, Fulcher Ireland guidelines. What's your expectation of what's going to come out of them? We have indeed. Well, I suppose first and foremost, Kiran, what's important to us is that we're working towards a safe and sustainable reopening. You know, we cannot afford to be closing it. I don't think our wider society can afford to, um, but that's really, really important. So I suppose some of the things that we would have, you know, I suppose sought kind of consideration of would be like if you're a resident, you know, what's it going to look like in terms of access to facilities? So whether it's the the gym, kids clubs, you know, potentially the bar, there was additional restrictions around it last year, even things like your breakfast buffet, you know, we've seen very successful versions of how they've been done in terms of queue management, you know, how they're assisted, you know, covered, things like time limits, you know, spaces in terms of social distancing, table sizes, you know, in the UK for a long while, kids weren't included in table counts, um, you know, closing time. And I suppose at times we felt like we were kind of putting people to bed. And, you know, when you've lots of things like responsible safety of alcohol certificates and others, you, you wonder, you know, are things like licensing or something that can come into play? But it's not just about residents either. It's about non-residents. So a big part of that right now is about outdoor dining. We've seen that their groups of 15 are allowed. Um, but again, we've no idea of what that looks like, because obviously the word group became very, very dangerous last year in so many respects. Um, and, you know, will there be different considerations in terms of outdoor versus indoor? Because there is a perception that the risk is obviously much lesser and even simple logistical things like access to bathrooms, you know, is live music potentially um, allowed outside? You know, there there are questions around weddings, you know, in May, larger numbers are allowed outside. There's no provision for the same in June. There's an anomaly between how many people are allowed at a ceremony versus how many people can attend the reception later. And even within the music, you know, music is allowed in church settings, but it's not allowed for a ceremony in a hotel or another venue setting. Um, there's lots of work going on around events uh, right now for essential services. When I say events, meetings, there's a sense of if it works for essential services and if it's safe, you know, could it not be leveraged across for those that do need access to corporate services? It's not a huge aspect of the market at this time of the year, um, but there is a sense and nor is there probably a big desire for it. So that's something that could probably safely resume because there'll be steadiness to approach. Um, you know, international travel, so much talk of, you know, the digital green certificate forget or the digital travel certificate there's a few different versions of the names but we've already seen um, countries in southern Europe you know declaring that they're open in essence and even some putting incentives in place in terms of visiting so whether it's Malta etc um, and lead times are a really really important part of international travel you know elite sports clarification on that since sport has, has resumed so there's a lot of kind of I suppose more of the conceptual or headline details some of which feeds into the reopening map 
some which comes through in terms of the guidelines. And then there's really granular detail, even simple stuff like, can I put throws in my beds? It makes a room look, you know, much more appetizing to the eye when guests arrive. Sure, yeah. Well, um, let's look at indoor dining because that's been a focus of debate over the past uh, couple of days. And when, when do you expect that that will be allowed happen again? Will there be a 105-minute time limit? Uh, and what do you think about that time limit and the one-metre social distancing? Does that work? So what I would say in essence is the way that it has been, Kiran, is 105 minutes only applied where it was one metre social distancing, no time limit applied where it was two metre social distancing. Hotels by their nature have a lot more space. So it hasn't been a, as huge a challenge for us as potentially other, you know, smaller restaurants, etc. would find. Um, but as a resident, you know, you don't expect to be asked to be, leave your table after 105 minutes, you know, even the, the mere calculation of it. Um, so I think that that's certainly an issue and it's something that we would like to see addressed. And I suppose it's a question of, you know, what science supports, you know, the cutting off after 105 minutes. I suppose there's a sense of questions ar- around that as well, too. Just tell us a little bit, Elena, about uh, the preparations you've been making at your hotel um, to reopen. Accommodation services are allowed to reopen uh, from June 2nd and to offer services to to guests who are staying overnight. Isn't that right? Um, And then wider hospitality can open uh, from the 7th of June. Correct. We're so excited, to be honest. I suppose last year, Kieran, we adapted. We were all kind of struck with headlights. This year, we've used the time really, really well. We all felt it was going to be a long time. Not that we ever expected it would be as long as what it has turned out to be. Um, But we've seen just incredible uh, creativity across uh, the country in hotels, you know, in terms of upskilling, etc. To focus, I suppose, specifically on, on our own hotel, we've used the time really, really well. And I feel we're going to open up as a much better um, place for our teams, for our guests, etc. Um, one of the things we did was focusing on the outdoors. We created a really, really good concept called the Treehouse, which started as a container, kind of a sense of that it would, you know, take away simple foods and fare. It's now becoming a full-blown outdoor a concept with fixed seating. There's a series of cabins, private cabins there as well. So a real kind of almost London vibe uh, in, um, in rural Adair. We've done some work in our lobby. We've added additional car parking facilities. We've done some work in our leisure club. Um, our spa is having a whole enhancement to its thermal suite, even down to our gardens, our bees, our bee observatories in place, lots of self-guided tours. But it's not just about the physical experiences. It's about the upskilling that has gone in place with it um, in terms of our teams, what they've learned, what they're replying. Um, a huge emphasis on creating kind of self-guided experiences, but making sure that they're warm and they reflect, I suppose, the type of personality that we have in the hotel. So we just can't wait um, to, to welcome guests back. We've worked really hard um, you know, to, to be ready. Uh, there's still a few things I think we'll be we'll be doing after the 2nd of June. Um, but I think that's the sentiment across the country. The time has been used really, really well and some great experiences await. Sure. Elena, how much is this uh, preparing for this and putting all these new innovations in place? How much does that cost you? Um, I wouldn't like to be drawn into it, but you're you're talking in the region of 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 a million euros, and I suppose just to say outside of all of the physical works that I spoke about there, um, what we found is as an Irish Hotels Federation in terms of a recent survey that the average cost of reopening is just shy of a thousand euros per bedroom, so the average hotel is 75 rooms. So that's a 75,000 cost. So if you never did, uh, you know, any upskilling or you never did any, added any additional features or anything like that, there are huge costs in terms of reopening. And I suppose that has implications then in terms of 
what reopening grants were put in place. Like last year, reopening grants were very, very welcome, but they didn't, I suppose, take into consideration the scale of the reopening costs. We have that information. Now, one of the things that we would have asked for is that this would be doubled. You know, we have seen some great initiatives put in place in terms of the outdoor grant scheme, the 17 million scheme. But, you know, in, at the end of the day, for most hotels like our own, that's a 4,000 euros contribution. That doesn't go far in terms of the scale of what we're putting in place. Elena, how many staff had you pre-pandemic? 230. And how many of those 230 are still with you? We've lost very few, uh, Kieran, probably about 10, to be honest with you. But the big news here is we're opening up with more than 230. Now, that's not typical of most hotels across the country. But one of the things is, I suppose, what we find now is people with their new lens post-COVID, you know, they may want different types of working hours. It could be kind of more part-time. It could be in terms of more flexible working arrangements. So we have some people in our team who would much prefer to work longer days, but but work less of them. So the notion of maybe doing three days this week, four days next week, that's something. And that's one of the reasons why we've added additional team members. Now, we also have kind of pent up demand, people who've moved events, etc. Um, are that. But that's why that clarity is, you know, the picture in terms of our own summer in a day or looks reasonably well in terms of occupancy. But we are concerned in terms of what lies beyond September. International travel is a huge part of that, events, etc. But when I talk about the picture in terms of occupancy, the reality is in hotels across the country, in July where occupancy peaks, it's only 31%. Last year, we ended up with only 30% across an industry. And even if you look at Fault Ireland statistics, they'll tell you that only 29% of Irish people took a break in 2020. So there's a lot depending on a good summer, but that's not going to be enough in terms of sustaining the livelihoods like in our own hotel and beyond. What's the Woodlands uh, occupancy looking like for June and July? Our occupancy is, we're very, very happy with it. It's over 60% at the moment. But I think that's because we're a resort style property. We have so much going on in terms of our key markets. Um, and Adair is very, very well established as is. And we're very accessible in terms of the road infrastructure. But again, you know, there are a few hotels that are probably in that space the southeast of the country has occupancy of over 50% at the moment. But if you look at urban areas like Dublin, 11%. And look, I don't have to look too far. If we go into Limerick City, the occupancy levels are very similar to Dublin. Sure. Paul Kelly of uh, Falter, Ireland. Um, last uh, summer, I suppose we had a, a strong summer of staycations, didn't we? I mean, people weren't able to uh, travel abroad. And this year, uh, Falter, Ireland has just recently launched a, a 4 million euro marketing campaign to encourage uh, people to get out there and explore and the various corners of the island. Um, tell us a little bit about that and, and what your expectations are for uh, the, the potential for summer staycations this year. Yeah, last summer, we, we you know, it was, it was a good summer from a domestic tourism point of view, but it was short. It was a very short season, uh, late getting going, etc. So, and, and as Elena said, you know, in terms of the domestic tourism economy, uh, doesn't you know you know doesn't make up for the lack of international tourism economy uh, uh, because of the the the, the you know the, the 70 70 to 75 percent of of the revenue normally comes pre-covid normally comes from overseas visitors so so it's great to have a strong domestic but it absolutely doesn't compensate for the international looking looking for looking forward then to this year um we have just launched uh, a you know a, 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 a huge marketing campaign 
uh, in Keep Discovering uh, that is looking to promote um, uh, tourism right across the country. We will be we will be putting extra focus into those urban areas that Elaine Elena mentioned uh, in terms of you know referencing the the um, you know the great experiences that people can have in 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 Dublin, in Limerick, in Cork, and and, and all of our our towns and cities. In addition to to the uh, to the great rural experiences that people can, people can have. So um, you know in terms of uh, we've got, we've got a, a full, uh, you know, full through the line campaign promoting all of that, uh, with lots of, uh, toolkits available to industry for, for industry to use that, use all of those campaign assets, uh, to promote their own businesses, uh, and, and, and their own destinations, et cetera. So, and we have, a, we have a, a huge quantity of, uh, of creative content that we'll be rolling out across all the, across all channels. Uh, over the uh, over over the coming weeks and months, uh, but really importantly, I suppose it's it's not just uh, it's not just about summer. Uh, it's about trying to keep promoting beyond the summer and get as much as we can into uh, into the uh, the autumn season as well. Paul, what's your best guess as to when uh, international tourists will return to Ireland? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think uh, you know the government are, uh, have said they're going to make a statement on that within the next week or so. I think uh, I think Friday uh, was was. My understanding, but I think it's it's coming within the next within the next couple of days. Uh, obviously, you know, in terms of the developments on the EU uh, uh, digital green uh, travel certificate, uh, sound very encouraging. Uh, my understanding is that you know, in terms of that's going to be open from the first of July with um, uh, with you know an expectation that everyone is is kind of uh, signed up by uh, within about six weeks. I think by about the twelfth of August. Uh, so that's obviously a very welcome development. Um, and uh, and I think that kind of gives the window that we'll be looking at kind of international travel starting again some stage between between early July and uh, and and you know mid mid August uh, is when things will start up again. And obviously, you know, in terms of the, uh, the public health considerations and the epidemiolo- epidemiological situation across the uh, not not just in Ireland but across um, uh, across the potential source markets as well as uh, is really key. Obviously, from an Irish perspective. In addition to the EU, the US and the UK are key markets, um, and uh, you know, so we, we'd um, you know we, we'd, we'd hope to see um, you know kind of travel coming f- uh, from those markets uh, as, as soon as possible. Um, but you know, obviously, when it once it's safe to do so. But we're hoping that you know, in terms of that, we will get um, you know uh, clarity from from the government and a roadmap and the timing of that within the, within the next few days. Now, we've obviously still got mandatory hotel quarantine for people coming in from certain countries. How do you think that has uh, impacted on the view of Ireland abroad? Obviously, you know, we, we had those uh, slogans of old, you know, Ireland that welcomes and uh, we'll give you a warm Cade Milifolcia and all of that. But um, when you're asking people from the likes of America or France um, to go into hotel quarantine, it's not very welcoming. And I just wonder what long-term impact you think that might have on tourism in Ireland. Uh, look, I mean, obviously, yeah, it's it's you know, uh, going into hotel quarantine is is absolutely not welcoming. Um, but it is, but it is required. Was you know, in terms of it is required from a public health consideration for 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 both the health of you know the the the, the wider population and and you know, in terms of it is a it is a pretty draconian measure. You know, require you know, which is obviously required in 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 particularly difficult circumstances. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't think, you know, in terms of it will have a, um, you know, we don't know is the honest answer what, it, what impact it will have on long term, uh, on long term perceptions, but I don't think it will have a particularly strong impact on long term, 
on on the long term perception of Ireland as a welcoming place. You know, the 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 the, the quality of the welcome that visitors have gotten, you know, over the last 50 years that have been coming to Ireland. Uh, and I know the quality of welcome that they'll get when they can, when it's, you know, safe to welcome them back again will be fantastic. And that stands to us uh, so, so well internationally. So I, I don't think that, that, you know, everyone understands that different countries have had to respond appropriately uh, during the pandemic and it's a different time, etc. cetera. Uh, and I think what's going to be important is about our ability to get once it's safest to get open again quickly and to start welcoming people back again quickly once it's safe to do so. And then I think the quality of a welcome will, will stand to itself. So I'm not overly worried about the long-term perception of that. Paul, another concern is how we're going to get the tourists into the country. Obviously, we had a very good um, a network of routes uh, across the transatlantic, but to uh, other parts of the world as well. And, and most of those have now stopped during the pandemic and restarting them is going to be a real problem, isn't it? How soon... Um, do you think we, we will be able to get those uh, all of those transatlantic routes uh, back up and running um, or how long before we can get get them back up and running? And I'm just wondering in terms of Aer Lingus's decision around the crew base in Shannon, which is obviously a blow to the region in the way in the Midwest. Um, uh, you know, how, how much of a disappointment is that um, for, uh, let's say, Falls Ireland in terms of bringing people in uh, from the United States in the months ahead? Yeah, look, I mean, I think in, in, in general, uh, the, it is going to be a long and difficult, uh, challenge to rebuild the air access. Ireland had achieved phenomenal progress in, in air access building, uh, over, over the last, uh, you know, since, since the crash really, um, uh, so over, over the last kind of 10 years, the, the amount of new gateways that have been opened, uh, up in, in, in US cities and across Europe, et cetera, the phenomenal, uh, number of people, the likes of Ryanair, were bringing into Ireland, etc., as well as the, as well as Aer Lingus and all the other carriers. So, you know, in terms of um, we had we had built for a small for a small island nation, we had built a phenomenal uh, uh, picture of, of 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 air access, and and you know, and a huge amount of credit to all the all the air airports and the airlines. Uh, you know, um, uh, is is deserved for that. And it is going to be real challenging given the crisis in the aviation industry that now all of those players are, are struggling with. Um, it is going to be a real challenge to build, uh, to, to, to build those back up. And it's not going to come, it's not going to come immediately. I think the important thing for Ireland is that we don't get left behind in terms of rebuilding that access. Because if, if airlines are constantly, you know, an airplane is your classic movable asset that you can move it from one route to another but and if it gets established and if it's doing successful on that route it's going to be more difficult to convince an airline to change that route back into a route to Ireland Mm -hmm. so the important thing is that that Ireland you know once now it's safe to do so that we move at pace to build those you know to uh um uh to build those 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 routes back up again uh and, and provide the right level of support uh, to to our airports and to the airlines um, to get those to get those routes up and running again. Um, uh, so I think that's uh, you know that that's 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 pretty key. Obviously, kind of you know I know the Aer Lingus decision around Shannon was not a decision that was taken lightly, um, and 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 is and is you know is you know really difficult for for that region. And we'll be working to support that region every way we can uh, through. Um, uh, you know, uh, to, to to try and uh, minimise the negative impact of that and try and get kind of routes built back up as soon as we can. 
Elena Fitzgerald Kane, what's your view on Aer Lingus's decision to close its crew base in Chan? Well, look, this is something that's local to me. It's something I'd be very passionate about. Um, and the reality is, you know, devastating news for the 81 families that are affected. Um, now, it's not that Aer Lingus, just to be clear about it, are pulling out of Shannon. But there has been a decision taken that it will, I suppose, in terms of some of the staff or the team that will be serviced from, from Dublin. So just, just to be kind of be clear about that. But I suppose it, it is, I suppose, it lays bare the cold reality around, you know, how exposed airlines are. And the impact for us is connectivity as an island nation. It's absolutely huge. We've already seen how some of our flights have been moved to, you know, Manchester. You can fly to Barbados from Manchester, uh, perceived to be one of the Irish routes or that. So I think it really highlights, I mean, aviation is on its knees. You know, as an island nation, we're on our knees. Um, you know, particularly given that 7 billion of our 9 billion tourism revenues always came from overseas and Dublin is particularly impacted. So I think what needs to be done here is a commitment from government around probably two important aspects of things. One is an activation fund in terms of supporting route development and particularly out of regional airports. So whether it's Shannon, you know, Cork is going to have huge challenges now because the runway is closed for works. Um, but the other regional airports as well. Shannon's problem is the fact that it's been too big to receive funding in the same way that the likes of some of the smaller airports has. So there's always been an anomaly there, but throw COVID into the mix and that becomes much, much more complex. But also in tandem with that, and, and part of, I, I sat in the Tourism Recovery Task Force, as did Paul earlier in the year, was the sense of doubling of, you know, tourism marketing funds and using that then, you know, to, I suppose, uh, you know, pivot Ireland to the world, you know. And the reality is, other countries haven't had the scale of closure or the scale of lockdown as what we have. So they are perceived to be more accessible. We have a lot of work to do, compounded by the fact that we're an island nation. And can I just say as well, I think we need to go a step further than the EU digital COVID certificate. I mean, our nearest neighbour, Britain, one of our primary markets, you know, we don't have any provision in place for safe uh, travel per se. Yes, we do in the context of a PCR test, but again, with a border, you know, um, so there's, there's a lot of kind of anomalies within that. The other side of it is in the context of countries like the US, you know, that have huge vaccination rates, huge connection with Ireland, huge pent up demand. They need to be addressed in the same way that we're looking at the EU digital uh, COVID certificate. So I suppose the, the key lesson here is, you know, we're behind the curve in terms of where we are. Um, connectivity is what's going to drive Ireland. This is not just about tourism. This is about broader FDI, etc. Um, and that and there needs to be a huge commitment for, from government in terms of putting those activation funds in place, you know, doubling up the marketing efforts. I mean, if you look at, I suppose, Tourism Ireland's global greening reach as as a success story, you know, they've cultivated a pent up demand. But that's no good to us if people can't get here in planes. Elena, pre-pandemic, how much of your business would have been fueled by tourists? 30%, um, Kieran. Now, that's, again, a rural or a regional picture. Like if you take Dublin, for example, 87% of guests that stayed, excuse me, 83% of guests that stayed in Dublin hotels pre-pandemic all came from overseas. The 17% then that came from domestic tourism, a lot of that was buoyed on by events, you know, events we don't have now. So whether it was concerts, matches, etc. 
So there's a huge job of work to be done there. And that's why Dublin is suffering that little bit more. And it didn't help, I suppose, that there was probably perceived to be higher incidence rates of COVID in, in Dublin last year. In, in essence, for some people, it may have become the epicentre. Um, and, and that really, I suppose, made Dublin's problems more difficult. But look, the great news is there's some great experiences awaiting Dublin. We're seeing great creativity in terms of, you know, bundling in attractions and, and that. And I suppose when we get a sense of the guidelines and we get a sense of, you know, when we we can go back to the things we like to do in terms of going to, you know, nice restaurants indoors or, you know, bar experiences. That's going to make all the difference. Yeah, sure. And in terms of your bookings, your forward bookings for June and July, are any of them or how many of them are from overseas, either Irish people returning home for a holiday or, you know, maybe foreign tourists coming here? Minimal, to be honest with you. There are a handful. I could probably count maybe 10 rooms on, on our books because I've gone through them. Interestingly, somebody contacted us last week because they were traveling from the States. And, you know, we explained, look, there's a process in place and mandatory hotel quarantine and you'd have to have completed that for 14 days in a designated hotel before you come to us. And they sent us on a screen grab of something that they'd seen on on an official government website. And there's a little bit of confusion that if you're vaccinated in terms of what you can and what you can't do. So I think we we need to offer more clarity around that as well. But because there are still some people who think they can travel. And I'll give you an example. On St. Patrick's Day, I got a text from one of my Chicago-based relatives saying, look, we can't wait to see you over here. And I showed the text to my mother and I said, how do I explain to him that we can only travel 5K? They were zipping off to Hawaii and they were going to all parts of the States and that. And eventually I text back and said, look, we can't wait to see you either um, or that. So they're, they don't understand just how restricted we have been. And for some people, the fact that when they, they feel they're vaccinated, I suppose they feel they have their um uh, you know, armour on for all the world. And they genuinely don't understand that they can't come. And inevitably, you know, like I, I, I take, I suppose, that snippet that I was sent from a government website and I kind of had to stop myself and think, am I actually definitely right that they have to go to, you know, and do, you know, um, mandatory quarantine or that? So we, we need to work on that. But I suppose the difficulty is if you work on creating too much clarity around it, they'll think, well, look, Ireland is closed and they'll go elsewhere because other places are, are open before us. Now, large parts of the economy have been um, kept open by the financial supports being offered by the government, but they're going to have to uh, end at some stage or, or be tapered off. Um, they're in place until the end of June. I think there's an expectation that they'll be extended at least until September. And the government has told us that there won't be any cliff edge uh, in relation to these uh, schemes. But they are going to have to be pulled, aren't they? And if the hotel sector is open from June onwards, come September, the government might decide that it's time to pull or at least begin withdrawing the financial supports from the hospitality sector. What would you say to that, Elena? So the first thing that I would say is I cannot wait for the day where I'm not dependent on government supports. That's the first thing. And I'd say that's the view of every hotel and tourism operator across the country. In essence, things like the EWSS, they've been like life support. Um, and there is no way that you would have, I, I don't even think anyone would have survived. It would be so, so difficult. Um, there should be a scalability put in place. There is a scalability in essence right now. So with the EWSS, if you're 30% down in your revenues, you automatically would qualify or in most cases you'd qualify. You know, with the CRSS, what would have happened was if you were you know, 75% more down, you automatically qualified. So some hotels will do better than others. We see that already with potential um, booking patterns um, and regional booking patterns of that. But the reality is, you know, my mother always says one swallow never made a summer. You know, it all depends on how the summer goes. 
you know, for those people who don't need the continuation of supports, then, you know, they get excluded from them. But there are businesses who are completely decimated by this and will continue to need them. So I think it's about a scalability. But equally, I don't believe there should be a hard stop at, you know, 30 percent or 25 percent. What happens if you're two percent below either way? Because in some ways, you know, it can undermine, I suppose, a commitment to employment and that because you don't, you know, and there's a lot of variables here. We don't know what September onwards is going to look like. When we reopened last summer, and I know it was very different in the context of vaccination rates, etc. But we never expected what was going to happen. So, you know, at the time, some places did really, really well. But the reality was it all fell away. Um, and we do not have access to a full season this year. We did not have one last year. Next year will be the beginnings of it. So this isn't about just, you know, dropping things off after the summer. This is about how the industry can perform and what restrictions are in place. Because at the end of the day, the restrictions that are in place are impeding our ability to sustain ourselves, you know, I suppose from a business perspective and to sustain the employment that goes with it. So do you think the support should be left in place at least until the end of the year? In some cases, Kieran, I think they need to be in place until the end of March next year. So in terms of the EWSS and local authority rates, because that's when we're going to have the beginning of what we hope will be our first proper season. Now, again, a lot of that is going to be determined by our connectivity. If you take something like VAT remaining at 9%, well, we need a commitment for that indefinitely. That is the right rate of that. That sits slap bang in the middle of our European partners. You know, we have the UK right now with a 5% VAT rate. Before we lowered it, there was only one country, Denmark, that had a higher VAT rate than us. And the other side of it is in terms of this year, I mean, nobody's had the opportunity to get the full advantage of it because we've been in essence closed for nearly half the year. You know, a lot of our market is off to us what domestic piece we will have there will be you know restrictions or limitations around it um that and with other countries opening before us particularly if we put the international lens on again you know um they're going to have the competitive advantage there as well and particularly given the fact that the cost of the inputs here are so much higher than a lot of other um european countries so that's one that needs to be committed to indefinitely for the others until the end of march 2022 and a scalability put in place that kind of captures i suppose what business activity is there. Paul Kelly, Elena mentioned uh, Dublin hotels and how they've really been hammered in the pandemic, uh, doing much worse in terms of occupancy rates than their country cousins, as it were. What plan has Falcha Ireland to help revive the sector in the capital? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose, for, first, firstly, what we're trying to do is through our domestic marketing campaign is to give them as much support and demand generation as we can from uh, from a domestic tourism point of view. We have a uh, we we have a, a recovery task force working in Dublin uh, that's been up and running uh, for for over a year now and or almost a year and and that's working on pulling together you know what can be done for both the domestic market immediately but also what can be done to develop the the offering in Dublin and how Dublin businesses work together so that they're ready for the international visitors and to get as much of the international business as they can uh, when it comes back. We're obviously working with a huge number of businesses in terms of providing training and supports and uh, financial mentoring and helping them manage their cash flow um, and and also their um, all of their their, their HR uh, issues where it's been kind of you know um, uh, how they manage you know when they have to lay people off and bring them back on etc. So there's a huge amount of survival supports that we've been putting into place uh, and and you know across. Uh, not just Dublin, but but the rest of the country. Um, but obviously, because, as Elena says, uh, you know, those urban centres like, like Dublin in particular 
really rely on that overseas visitor. It is going to be a longer recovery time for them. Uh, they didn't have the benefit of that strong summer last year, you know, which which for for many businesses gave them that injection of cash that, that helped them through the winter of last year. Dublin hotels didn't have the benefit of that. Um, so their financial position is, is more precarious. And we are working with an awful lot of those businesses trying to help manage that so that they they can they can stay viable um uh you know in terms of through until when recovery can come. So I think that's you know in terms of that that's that's they're the main ways that we're 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 trying to uh we're we're trying to help uh those businesses to uh, uh to survive. But I think in terms of the supports, etc., you know, I think uh there there it will be really important that there is a recognition that there is going to be different speeds of recovery within the tourism and hospitality sector. Not every sector is going to recover or every region is going to recover at the same pace. You know, our view is obviously the government cannot continue to pay out the kind of level of support that they've been paying out indefinitely. Uh, you know, that that's ultimately that bill is going to come back to the taxpayer, you know, so uh, we've got to be be conscious of that. But I suppose the best way in, in, in our mind for... Um, you know, for for the cost of those supports to diminish to the government is for businesses to no longer need them. Uh, you know, in terms of so, you know, they they are as as Elena highlighted, they've been very cleverly designed to be uh, based on a percentage revenue reduction. Uh, you know, so you know, in terms of whether it's the EWSS or the CRSS, they both require uh, you know um, revenue reduction to qualify for. So our hope, I suppose, is that. The best way for businesses to no longer to no longer be drawing down those supports is that their revenue is no longer declining at those levels that they require the supports. So it's how do we get the revenue back up? Because as Elena says, there is no one in the industry that wants to be relying on, on government supports. Yeah, sure. Paul, have you any sense or has Fulcher Ireland done any um, research on this as to how many businesses, let's say by March of next year, when we're all hopeful that things will kind of return to some level of uh, normality again in, in terms of tourism. Have you any sense of how many businesses in the hospitality sector might have bitten the dust by then? No, we don't is, 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 the, is the straight answer to the question, Carol. Uh, the, um, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of uh, there have been very, there have been a small number and each case is, is tragic because it's a family and, uh, and it's a business and it's something people have put their, have put their life savings into. So any business failure uh, is 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 just something that's very difficult at a human level for those people involved in, in in the businesses, and we need to always remember these are you know human stories. This is people's jobs, this is people's savings, this is people's family. So you know it's very easy to kind of talk about numbers of businesses and just think of them as some kind of abstract corporate thing out there, but it is real impacts on real people's lives. Luckily. Uh, you know, well, not so much luckily, but but we've seen very little business failure in the context of the revenue decline in 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 the sector. There have only been a small number of businesses, uh, relatively speaking, that have uh, that have become insolvent so far uh, through through the pandemic, uh, and and that's been you know absolutely down to the level of government supports that have come in on EWSS and CRSS, etc. Um, and you know, I think the um. We don't know yet because I think what will be critical is what is the level, the mixture of the revenue for the, the the last six months of this year and the government supports for the last six months of this year. 
those two things, we, we absolutely know that for many businesses and particularly those in, in the urban areas, their reserves are now completely drained. They're, they've, you know, any cash reserves they had coming into the into the, the pandemic over the last 15, 16 months, they have been so massively eroded. Even with the government supports, they have not been enough to, to maintain the balance sheets at the position they were in at the start of the pandemic. So we know those balance sheets are much, much weaker now. Um, and, you know, in terms of, so it will be key that the mix of revenue and government supports across the next six months, how that balance out, that will determine what we are hearing is that, you know, we're, we're not likely to see many kind of insolvencies in the back end of this year. What we, but if the mix of revenue and government supports isn't right, then it'll be, uh, you know, quarter one, quarter two next year is when we'll start to see that those business failure numbers coming up. So as I say, you know, the business have been kind of helped and, and, and kind of carried so far that let's let's hope that, that we can get them over the line and not when we're so close to recovery that we can keep those businesses alive to, to when we can get to that recovery point. Elena, have you any sense of how many hotels have effectively gone out of business or how many might go out of business when the dust settles on all of this? And I also wonder in terms of Dublin, I mean, Thousands of new hotel bedrooms are uh, at the planning stages, have either had permission granted or uh, permission is being sought. Um, I'm just wondering whether we need those uh, extra bedrooms and those extra hotels in Dublin, given the state of the industry at the minute. The first thing I'd say is Dublin is the gateway in many respects to Ireland. Regional airports wouldn't like to hear that, but so many people do come through Dublin. It's an important part of their itinerary. Um, and Dublin, you know, in, in former years would have performed at very high rates in terms of the 90s, etc. The national occupancy would have been 72%. And so there was demand there for it. And in terms of those rooms, you know, many are committed to or, you know, very much in the pipeline, near reopening, etc. Um, and there was an acute need for it for a while. And we hope that, you know, sustainable travel will be restored to a point that, it, you know, they'll be needed again. We don't have sight of, you, you know, I suppose, how many businesses will potentially close. I mean, for some people, they've just lost nearly the will to be interested in it. You know, the financial aspect of it is is another side of it. And that, but I suppose what it really, really highlights is, look, we were the first hit, the hardest hit, we'd be the last to recover. As Paul very correctly said, there's a huge human piece to this. There's 270,000 people, one in 10 of all Irish jobs. 70% of those jobs are outside of Dublin. And so in some cases, entire communities, you know, it's not just the tourism aspect of it. It's the retail, it's the suppliers, it's everything else. We've been assured of no cliff to edge. But if, if you're a hotelier like me or any other hoteliers across the country, when you go and you submit cash flows, there's about 50 versions of what it should look like. You know, it, 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 it's guessing, it's speculative. So we actually don't know really the extent of where it's going to land. Um, you know, hoteliers, uh, I mean, we're on a 40-acre site, okay? We we morphed from a four-bedroom bed and breakfast in, in the late 70s. Um, the cash burn that we have had, you know, the supports have been absolutely welcome. I just want to give you a sense of the CRSS. It was a 5,000. We would have qualified for the maximum, which was 5,000 a week of a payment. 3,000 of that went to insurance. 3,000 of that went on light and heat. So my, my CRSS didn't even cover those two fundamentals, which you can't operate without. The lights need to be kept turned on in some shape or form. Um, and, you know, the insurance has to be in place. Interestingly, 1,500 of, of my weekly bill was passed through charges. So another government levy, right? So, you know, we're a community of 230 people. And as you try and support them, and our, our wider community, the cash burn is, is enormous, you know, and this huge responsibility goes with that. So we really need to ensure that sector specific, 
a scalability is there. We need to review the piecemeal approach. We stop the guesswork. The reality is for some people, the first run that they'll have at a complete season will be in 2022. For others, it'll be 2024. And that's what ITIC has shown in terms of, you know, recovery to 2019 levels. Um, and so the supports and the scalability needs to reflect that. They obviously will be scaled back for people who are performing, who bounce and recover a little bit quicker. For those who don't, and particularly if the connectivity issue isn't addressed, more needs to be done. And it's great to see initiatives like what Fault Ireland are putting in place in the context of Dublin. Uh, Limerick has been launched as well. Um, and I know that Cork is, is certainly another area that needs help. And there are other areas, you know, there are still regional areas that aren't, I suppose, getting the same attention at a domestic level. And I think maybe we all need to broaden our lens in that respect too. But there needs to be a change in the government approach. Yes, there is a realisation of just how tough things are. Um, but we really need to look at the modus operandi in terms of sector specific scalability and to really change the piecemeal meal approach and recognise the fact that it's going to be minimum 2022 and up to 2024 before there's recovery. And, you know, it's important to remember, Kieran, in the aftermath of the last financial crisis, and while it's a very, very different crisis to this, tourism was the number one creator of jobs, created 90,000 new jobs. There is nobody that can create regional employment like we can. Um, and we've invested heavily, two billion in exchequer returns every year into government. You know, and I don't mean it in a cruel way, but the time has come to invest in us a payback because we will deliver if we're given the resources. Paul Kelly, I know the plan for the guidelines for uh, the reopening of indoor dining have yet to be published, but with a fair wind at our back and given that the vaccine programme has really accelerated now in recent weeks, when would you hope that indoor dining could resume? Well, I think that, you know, in terms of that, that's, that is a matter for, for government. And, uh, but, but they have indicated, you know, that, that, you know, in terms of that they're looking at, at indoor dining opening in July. Um, so look, we, we, we want it to open as soon as it is safe to do so. Uh, but, but I think that is really important that as soon as it's safe to do so, no one wants to go backwards. You know, Elena talked about the cost of reopening and closing, et cetera. They are significant costs. No one wants to be in that position where, where we need to kind of reopen something and then close it down and reopen it again. Um, so, so it is about kind of moving at the right pace. Uh, but you know, it's been, you know, it's been flagged by, by government that, that they, that they are looking at kind of indoor dining opening in July. And obviously we'd like to see that and we'd like to see it as, as early in July as it's safe to do so. Paul, have you plans for a staycation yourself? I do, absolutely. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, 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 I've a couple of places uh, that I'm, I'm getting out to keep discovering. Uh, I'll be, I'll be down in West Cork, uh, um, uh, towards the, uh, towards the end of June and I'll be up in, uh, and I'll be up around, uh, up around the Westport area. Uh, and I've got a, I've got a, a business trip planned down to Limerick there soon to, to, uh, to help launch the, uh, the, the, the new strategy to help grow Limerick. Elena, I guess you're going to have a busy summer working, so uh, probably no staycation for you, but any plans for later in the year? We do actually have plans for the summer. I have uh, three very busy boys um, and that, so we do have plans for the summer. But the funny thing is now they all have their own agenda in terms of what they want to do. We've always staycationed um, at home in the summertime and, and always enjoyed it. Um, but I just think it's it's the new experiences. It's the surfing, it's the kayaking. It's, you know, going to kind of, I suppose, forest parks, zip lining um, and, and all the drama that comes with it. And haven't we had such great, um, I suppose, growth in our greenways? Like here in Limerick now, we've opened our new greenway um, and probably not as commercial maybe as some of the other greenways. 
Um, I haven't been to the Waterford Greenway yet. So just, and you know what? I can't wait actually for a night out in Dublin, truth be told as well. Maybe as a little couple's break, we might uh, sneak one in. But we do expect you busy. I'm very lucky because I work with uh, three of my brothers, my mum and, and a fantastic team. So I'm not there all day, every day, uh, although sometimes it feels like that. But we do have a little family roster, so we all have our own time. Um, and, you know, it's important. I think we all have a new lens post-COVID and it's important to kind of take that time as well. You know, we, I suppose we feel that over the last year and a bit, we, we haven't been able to do as much as what we'd like to do. So I'm looking forward to really, really exploring. And I, I can't wait, you know, to visit all my hotel and guest house um, members, you know, since I came into this role 15 months ago and our very first day was our first COVID meeting. Just the opportunity has been so limited, really, to, to get around. So I can't wait. Great. And June 2nd is obviously the, the big day for you, Elaine, in, in terms of reopening. Hopefully uh, there won't be any more lockdown restrictions. And we wish you well uh, for the summer ahead. Elena Fitzgerald-Kane and Paul Kelly, thank you for joining Inside Business. OK, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Paul Kelly and Elena Fitzgerald-Kane. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon on sound. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care and stay safe.